Hello, everybody. My name is Jason West, and this is PodClass. Today's episode is brought to you by the Cal State Long Beach College of Education and Educational Leadership Department. Did you know that the Educational Leadership Department at Cal State Long Beach is home to not one, not two, but three advanced degree programs? One such program is the Educational Leadership Doctorate Program, a three-year program designed for working professionals in PK-12 and higher education who want to further promote social justice in urban educational settings. What's particularly unique about the program is that higher ed and PK-12 students take many of their courses together, cue the We Are Family theme song, and they do this so they can learn together how to address problems across the educational spectrum. The program prides itself on providing high levels of support and practical knowledge so that students graduate on time and make a difference in their jobs. Interested in applying? Check out csulb.edu forward slash edld for dates and information. That's csulb.edu forward slash edld. Go beach, go teach, go lead. Today's tea is provided by Snapdragon and Thistle. Do you know where your teas come from? Don't worry, Snapdragon and Thistle does. Snapdragon and Thistle prides themselves on sourcing their teas ethically. They've eliminated those pesky middlemen. Damn you, middlemen. After the leaves are picked, your leaves only make two stops before landing at your front door. Y'all, two stops? I'm turning 40 later this year, and I have found that the older I get, the more stops and the more steps it takes me to do just about anything. Snapdragon and Thistle provides the best prices for premium, ethically grown teas so that both your taste buds and your conscience can enjoy your cup of tea. Snapdragon and Thistle is also offering podcast listeners 10% off their next order. All you have to do is go over to snapdragonandthistle.com, that's S-N-A-P-D-R-A-G-O-N-A-N-T-H-I-S-T-L-E.com, that's right, I spelled that whole thing for you, and enter the promo code Mr. West T10. That's M R W E S T T E A 10. Now, I realize I just threw a whole bunch of letters and numbers your way, but while you're processing everything I just gave you, let's just take a moment to bask in the fact that I have my very own promo code, y'all. My very own promo code for T. While we let that just sort of wash over and warm our hearts and souls, let's start the show. Zoom with Dr. Hawani Nagusi. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So let's do a quick rundown of your CV. Uh, Dr. Nagusi has worked in early childhood education for over two decades, serving as an assistant professor at Chapman University and a child life and early intervention specialist at UCLA. She currently serves as a founding board member of the Early Childhood Education Ethiopia Organization, which is an organization that was founded after her dissertation was published. Wow. Dr. Nagusi, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. So 
get comfortable. I hope you're you're all in your favorite seat or whatever you got. You got your cup of tea? Yep. Here it Excellent. is. Excellent. <laughs> oh, that's a nice cup too. Because before we get into today's show, I want to start with a quick segment we're calling intersectionality. All right, let's take a sip. Today we are talking about chamomile. So fun fact about teas, true tea only comes from a single plant, the Camellia sinensis plant. Chamomile is simply an herbal drink. Nevertheless, it's an extremely important component of tea culture. In fact, you'd be hard pressed to find a tea manufacturer that doesn't sell some variety of chamomile. It's that essential. Something like 90% of all imported chamomile in the U.S. is used for herbal tea. Chamomile looks like a little daisy. It's a little smaller than your thumbnail. It's a, a very cute flower, actually, and its use dates back thousands of years, back to, I mean, at least Egyptian times, ancient Egyptian times, that is. The term chamomile comes from the Greek word, and I pray that I pronounce this correctly, chamomalia, or ground apple, to describe its refreshing apple-like scent. In Spain, chamomile has been known for centuries as mantazia, or little apple, for the same reason. Chamomile tea is also an extremely popular drink in Mexico, where they call it manzanilla. It's so popular in Mexico that if you simply order a cup of tea, your waiter will almost always ask, de negro o manzanilla, meaning black tea or chamomile. Whether it's used for fragrance or its relaxing properties or just the flavor itself, it goes really well with desserts or simply after a large meal. That's typically when I like to have it. Either way, the history of chamomile spans many cultures and continents and is a crucial component of tea culture today. Enjoy. Thank you. All right, Dr. Nagusi, you're probably wondering why we are drinking this classic herbal tea today, right? Like, how does chamomile intersect with education and personal identity? So, as I mentioned earlier, chamomile is not technically classified as tea, but it's an essential component of tea culture, much like in the way early childhood education isn't typically classified as part of the public school education system, but it's an essential component of the education process. So I'll start by asking you to tell us a bit about why you've chosen to dedicate your life to ECE and what makes it so essential to the world of education. Uh, thank you. I like how you contextualized it and starting with chamomile and, and how it serves as the foundation of all teas. I never thought of it like that. So uh, it actually bleeds into early childhood education um, as much as, uh, as you said, K through 12 has and not forgotten. I think they acknowledge the importance of early childhood education, but not included. Yeah. Um, and so for me, the first eight years of life through work, through theory, through just even my own children, I know it's uh, the building blocks of life. Um, and we and now research shows us what happens at six and eight months actually affect how you interact with other people. I mean, the rest of your life. And so that has been my anchoring, almost anchoring rubric <laughs> for why I've stayed with early childhood education and uh, why I continue to invest in it. Um, and I think to directly answer your question, I think without investing in early childhood education, I think humanity ends up the way it ends up. 
really that's that's really it you know if we invest fully if we invest holistically if we invest in the heart and in the mind equally in the first eight years of life then we see nations that do better with society and with themselves and each other um and that's really why i chose it so based on what you just said i still just can't help but wonder why it's classified the way it is why do you think ECE is kept at such a distance with its own budget and rules. Like, why not complete the whole vertical alignment? I think it's it's in the way it, the way we look at children. So historically, like if we go to even um, Europe, sixteen hundred, right? Children were meant to be seen and not heard. Um, culturally speaking, even I was now, like, it's not just Europe in the sixteen hundreds. That was how I grew up. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I know I'm like close to 40, but I'm not, still, it's not that Not ancient. 400, it's yeah. It's not that ancient of a practice, yeah. Yeah, and I, and, and I think we've never let go of that, how we see children. And maybe the association is, you know, at, at birth, children, of course, don't speak, but they do communicate. Um, they express themselves in different ways, but our understanding of how to interpret that is still underdeveloped. And I mean, the adults. Yeah. And I don't think as much as we've talked about how it is important that we really have understood that uh, children are to be heard and not seen. And to answer your question, I think part of that segregation between K through 12 and zero to five is ECE or the birth to five is still seen as something we look at, not something we... Um, put in the context of education, sit, listen, uh, construct knowledge and spit it out. Uh, and as much as K through 12 has advanced in their standardization and curriculum and instruction, they look back at us and see, well, they're still developing. You see that? Like mm -hmm. as children, we're still developing. And what we're saying is, no, we've developed. I mean, we've been developed. At birth, we were developed. Uh, and I think it's a mind shift. I think your question is not about even policy. It's about mind shift. How do we see the birth to five? Does what we say and what we know match? And it doesn't. That's the issue. It doesn't match. Especially given what we know about how crucial those first five years are to the trajectory of the person's life overall. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is why... Uh, you know, Sesame Street was created, I believe. I, I remember it was for kids who were in a lower socioeconomic neighborhood who didn't necessarily have all of the resources. The creators of Sesame Street wanted to have something for them, so they created this show on public access. Of course, now you watch it and it resembles nothing of what it was at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Sesame Street is fully gentrified at this point, but, you know, it, it was, it was, you, you watch the older episodes and everything is graffitied, everything, you know, is, it seems very humble in terms of its uh, development. Why, why do you think that mind shift is, is still a struggle for so many people, given what we've already seen over the last, you know, what, 40, 50 years of research? I think part of it is, um, even as a field, early childhood education, we haven't done a good job, really, I'll be honest, branding ourselves. 
K through 12 is a well-branded uh, education atmosphere. You know, uh, schools are named after famous people. Uh, you go to a certain neighborhood and the school is X, Y, and Z. With early childhood, it's very fragmented. It really is. And because it's so fragmented, what you would get with branding with maybe, let's just say, Bright Horizons, which is a, a private entity, is very different than uh, a school down the street. Uh, what we get with Head Start, which is extremely comprehensive and we should follow. And by the way, um, if I'm not mistaken, Sesame Street was a Head Start project. Mm. If we look at Head Start, you don't see commercials about Head Start and how well organized and how, how holistic it is. So it is not in the mind frame. It is not in the forefront of the community, the constituents. You see what I mean? Yeah. We talk about teachers going to their union and pay raises. When was the last time we heard that about early childhood education? Uh, we heard snippets, you know, during COVID and during the presidential election with, I believe it was Elizabeth Warren who situated herself in a preschool environment with cubbies and the, you know, the alphabet. That was the last time, <laughs> you know, before that, it's just like sound bites that we hear about early childhood. And so part of it is when I say branding, we don't talk about it as not as the frequency, but we don't have quality conversations around early childhood education. It's yeah, I mean, even yes. even TK exactly. struggles. I mean, you look at some of the larger districts in our country and not every single elementary school offers TK, only a few of them, a smattering, if you will. Yep. Yeah. What have you learned since clearly it's not uh, necessarily the most functional form in our country, what have you learned about the way other countries approach ECE? You know, um, those that are very successful with early childhood, and, and, and I'll just highlight, and this is not uh, just exclusive to these countries, but if we look at New Zealand mm. or Australia or New Zealand Japan, has been crushing it lately. They've been having yeah. a great couple of years. <laughs> yes. And no COVID, by the way, right? That's so what I'm saying. That's yeah. really <laughs> unbelievable. Um, so their approach is very universal. And it's uh, somewhat of an equity-based. And I think if we look at the United States, part of the struggle with ECE is that there's a very poor and rich approach to it. If you're rich, you get to get to go to this very influential, lavish early childhood education. And if you're poor, then your resources and the quality of experiences is limited. Um, in other countries, it is a very universal approach, meaning it's almost your right to have a quality education. That doesn't mean these countries don't have their own internal issues. And I also wanna share that Ghana has been very successful with some of their approaches to this, because I don't want us, to, when we think about ECE, that countries that are underdeveloped are also failing. There are some countries that have done um, somewhat right by early childhood education. So a universal approach has been proven to be successful. That's one, Jason. The second one is, using culture. So when we look at uh, Japan after World War II and Italy with Reggio Emilia, after World War II, both countries kind of use their own cultural practice, uh, their own cultural knowledge to kind of revamp early childhood education and make it 
um, streamlined throughout the country. So in the case of Japan, the first, if I'm not mistaken, the first six years of life, they're really learning about themselves, their culture, their tradition, who they are, their history. And then they incorporate this worldly knowledge. And so when we do that, um, it's very easy to implement that versus a curriculum that's imported from other countries. That's one. Two, governments also uh, invest in early childhood education. And I mean invest, not talk about it and cut many parts of the budget as it goes to early childhood on the way to early childhood. Yeah. But really, if it's like 50 million, then you apply the 50 million, not the 1 million by the time it gets to the classroom. Yeah, it's like the literal idea of trickle down. Yeah. <laughs> like it really just like, by the time it gets to ECE, it's been. Yeah, it's $5. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so that's, that's the other way. And um, the last one is, um, and I think maybe it wasn't articulated this way. It, it's almost like. I feel a bottoms up approach is, is very important. Looking at who are the constituents that are not, um, that we are not reaching. So if we start with those low socioeconomic population, if we start with the low to no income population, then we can really erect a system that is um, usable to everyone. Mm. So these are some of the things that, that um, again, that doesn't mean they don't have issues, but they reach much more and many more students this way than we are doing uh, in other countries. How has the pandemic impacted early childhood oh. education, both locally and globally? What's what's the impact been like? Uh, you know, I've heard in many conversations that uh, the field will never be the same, and I truly believe that, unfortunately. How so? Uh, We've lost a lot of teachers. I think what it has amplified is our workforce in early childhood education was one of the lowest paid. And I think you know that too, Jason, compared yeah. to a kindergarten teacher who, even in the state of California, correct me if I'm wrong, who starts around 50, right? Or above 40. Uh, our teachers were making maybe 28,000 or 24,000 a year. Less, I have a friend who works uh, in a preschool and she gets paid it's like $16 an hour yep. pre-tax. Pre yeah. And she has to get her own health insurance. Yep. And so you, you think about schools closing down and mm -hmm. these are our, our essential workers that we fail to call essential, that we fail to right. support, uh, that were hanging on by a thread. Most preschool teachers prior to this were working second jobs or nannying on the weekend or doing X, Y, and Z. Right. Uh, and now how do you go back to an environment that is one, the ratio is lower, so they might not meet, need as many teachers. Two, the support wasn't there. And not to a fault of the institutions or the organizations they work for, but again, we go back to your question, your previous question, what, what has worked? And we never implemented what has worked. Mm. Um, and I don't think early childhood education will be the same, but we can make it better. I truly feel this, this is an opportunity for us to really make it like wake up and make it better. Uh, and in, in, in terms of the rest of the world, um, I think the impact has been similar, uh, to be honest. I think there's been a lot of organizational talks with the UN, with um, 
GPE, a Global Partner for Education, uh, Childhood Education International, you know, even the Lego Foundation has done some uh, talks around COVID and the impact in early childhood education. Um, but again, we still don't have a, one, a global look, a, a global approach. And then when we do, um, we're not, again, we're not concentrating on those rural areas that were already impacted before COVID and COVID just kind of amplified that impact. Um, and so we have yet to see. Now, California has a lot of uh, things in the pipeline, you know, the, the early learning, the early edge that they're rolling out. Um, the federal government, I believe, is investing a lot of money in early childhood education. Again, it's how it materializes and where that money lands. That's the issue. Who are the constituents? Right. Is it going to underserved community, the black and brown children that are impacted by this COVID? Um, yeah, or does it, is it going to be distributed by a, you know, an ECE czar, if you will, that, that <laughs> understands how to best allocate funds to early childhood education? Because it seems like the majority of people in education, and I, I include myself in that, there is a large gap yeah. in what we understand is critical and essential and what the benchmarks are for that age group. It, it strikes me that in politics in particular, there's a great focus on the unborn children, and then there's a great focus on the K through 12 children. And then there's now a great focus on the higher ed children, for lack of better phrasing, uh, in terms of student loan stuff. Yep. And it just seems that the zero to five is like the lost generation. And why, why, why do you think that might be? Would, is there just not a strong enough voice? Is there a willful ignorance? What, what do you think is keeping this essential? Because I mean, if you talk to anybody who has any children between zero and five, <laughs> uh, you know, oh, those are such special years. Oh, there's so many things. Their their brain is on fire. They're learning so much, and I want to make sure that they're ready. When's the best time to start teaching them to read and potty train and all that stuff? Yeah. And yet, it's just like, ah, oh, they'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. So oh, when you were coming to kindergarten behind, sorry to. No, no, no. When you're talking, um, when you described, I like the way you described it that, you know, before birth, yeah, the prenatal years, yes, there's a lot of, you know, go to your doctors and go to make sure and this. And you're right. And um, when you asked your first question, why do you think, and the first thing that came to my mind is, I wish policymakers sit in a toddler classroom for two days. <laughs> You know why? Because I think that's the only way they can make the connection. I think that the biggest gap, I think, is policymakers are not previewed to what really happens in the birth to five in terms of development, in terms of learning, in terms of interaction, in terms of environment. And so how can you make policies uh, that impacts the youngest if you really don't know what happens in that classroom, I think that's the issue, one of the issues. The other issue is what, as you said, do we have people that can articulate, okay, so the policymaker can't spend time in the toddler room with a toddler teacher 
seeing what that toddler teacher goes through as a human being first. Let's say, okay, they don't have time to do that. Then you're right, do we have the right people who can advocate for the birth to five? Um, and who can advocate for, uh, in a, from this lens of diversity, uh, you know, who can really articulate the teacher, the child, the parent, the classroom, the environment, they have to know every bit of the piece. The difference between K through 12 and early childhood, in early childhood, we spend a lot of time with interaction and environment and who's teaching and what they're teaching and the social emotional, not to say K through 12 doesn't, but I believe K through 12 is more concentrated on this cognitive development on mm. expanding the mind. Yes, the heart matters. Where in birth to five and birth to eight, we're about developing the heart. And now you see our policymakers invested in the heart. And I think there's a huge gap between that. I don't think they see it as that, that these are the formative social emotional years that makes a human a human. Mm -hmm. But they're not spending time with those kids or the teachers or the classroom. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's so, it's wild to me how essential this phase of life is. I mean, my wife and I, we have a two and a half year old and a five and a half year old. And we're like, the way we approach their behaviors and we want them to know now how to handle, how to communicate, how to process, because we know that when they're older, that's going to be either much harder or too late. And because of that, and because of the resources that my wife and I are able to provide our children, they're incredibly fortunate, incredibly privileged. And the, the, the students that we are tossing into kindergarten who are not only ill-prepared for the structures of public school, they're ill-prepared for the socialization that, that, that comes with going to these large classrooms. And that's not through any fault of upbringing. It's just for a lack of resources. You know, yeah. if, if you are like, look, I got to work because I have a child and they need to eat and they need to have clothes and I want them to have everything that I couldn't have. But the only way I can do that is the amount of hours that I'm working. Yep. Wh where are you going to, you know, find a, a, a preschool in, in we you know some of these uh families are living in food deserts how are they going to yeah. find uh child care set facilities as well so okay before i get myself worked up into a, a, a frothy <laughs> depression over this what do you think we can do to create a more equitable ece system right is there a clear starting point or is it kind of like cleaning a house and that it really doesn't matter where you start as long as you actually start and just keep going until it's done? Um, I think we can be more intentional. I really do. I think even the way you described um, just the food desert, there's preschool deserts too. Mm -hmm. And there's quality preschool deserts too. And I think it starts with us talking about equitable learning environments, just advocating for early childhood education to be equitable, high quality, uh, 
maybe creating um, exemplar preschools in some neighborhoods. Um, I always go back to the Perry Preschool Project um, in, in Michigan in the 1960s. And that was just one preschool that still informs us to this day about can the you, importance. Can you talk a bit about that? Sure. So the Perry Preschool Project was done, I believe, in 1956 in um, Michigan. And they took what they considered at-risk children, two and a half, three-year-olds. Uh, they were majority, if not all, African-American uh, young uh, uh, girls and, and boys. And they provided them uh, three hours, three to four hours of preschool, high quality preschool education where it's very interactive, uh, where they did some home visits um, and they followed. And there was the, the uh, this cohort. And of course there was the other one that wasn't provided the, this high school, this high preschool uh, learning environment. And they followed these groups for I believe about 30 to 40 years. Nice. And the outcome of the children that were like in, a real longitudinal study. A real, yep. It's I, I believe it's the longest running uh, uh, preschool study wow. in the US. So when we look at that study, when we look at that demographic and the outcome, we already have the answers. You know, when you provide high quality uh, learning program, and it's not regardless of their home environment or the stressors, just life stressors. But think about it, three hours of high quality program. Yep. I think we can do that. I think we can do that in this country if we're intentional about it. And when we look at the outcome of these group of individuals after 30, 40 years, that should be our uh, starting place, you know? Um, but for whatever reason, we don't invest fully. Um, I always go back to Head Start because Head Start has a lot of great components. It's not without fault, but it has a lot of great components. And if we think of what if we invest more holistically? What if we clean that up? Mm. You know, what if we clean that system up and make sure that uh, we blend in some of these high quality uh, look how high quality feel, high quality research based, which they already do, but to make sure that we reach more students and to make sure that teachers are, are uh, supported. And then we can also make it very culturally relevant, you know, creating preschools around communities uh, that serves that community culturally, that serves them linguistically, that serves them with the population of teachers that resonates with who they are, that reflects who they are. So it's doable, Jason. I think that the question is, I think you asked this too, is it willful ignorance? And maybe part of it is those children that are left in the cracks are still black and brown children, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> if we're gonna be very honest about it, those children that are coming to school uh, somewhat prepared right. are, or that are always um, sent for multi for disciplinary issues are usually black and brown children. And when we look at it, we should be looking at, did we provide the right environment for them before they came? And the answer to that is no, we failed them. We, we didn't provide the right environment. We didn't provide them with high quality preschool that can mitigate some of these disciplinary challenges. Did we put them in front of teachers that understand that a two-year-old, a three-year-old, and four-year-old 
behave similarly the same way, um, but did we give them the right tools to self-regulate, to help them work out their emotions so that when they go to kindergarten, they are just prepared for that environment. And that what, that's what you are touching upon. They're able to sit with 30 children and be able to regulate themselves and not worry about what Tommy and Jimmy are doing over there. And the answer to that is we failed because I think the way we still look at birth to eight is different, but the way we look at black and brown children birth to eight is extremely different and how we serve them mm. is a very different tool. Oh, there's a lot to unpack there. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so I'm going off the cuff here, so forgive me. It, it, we're talking about three hours of service for kids and I already can hear people saying, well, three hours, how is that logistically feasible for the parents? to pick them up or anything like that. I hear you say that, uh, you know, if we're not giving these children the opportunities for early childhood education, they're more likely to have disciplinary issues uh, in, in the K through 12 system and potentially even be behind academically. And, you know, and I'm hearing all the conversation we've had about politicians and their role and I can't help but wonder who should be the one bearing the responsibility for providing ECE. Is it the government? Is it a school district to say, look, it's in our best interest to get these kids ready for us. And the only way to do that is to offer ECE. Is it the community that needs to get more involved and say, look, we need to make sure that our children in our community are prepared to not just sustain the community, but grow it and be prepared and go into schools ready and all that. Who, who do you think should be stepping up to the plate for lack of a better uh, metaphor and really, you know, taking ownership of this? Um, everyone, you know, it's that African proverb, right? It takes a village to raise a child. Right. And I think you touched upon everyone, the community, parents, uh, the government, uh, local agencies, um, it's about everyone taking a piece of this heavy load, you know. Um, I think about a single mom who has a three-year-old who may have to drop him off very early and pick him up at late. But in that eight hours, if that child is not having a high quality meaning interaction curriculum, they're teaching them about social emotional, you know, if they're not having that, then that parent picks that child back home and then she has to do all of that again. You see that? So it is just about taking, fitting that puzzle, making sure we're thinking about that single mom. And policymakers are also thinking about that single mom. And the community is also thinking about that single mom and that child and the agencies too, maybe supporting them with food to that school, you know, if you can afford it from the community, everybody has a role to play. Mm. But if we don't have a school planted in, that's the first thing, everyone cannot play that role. Do you see that? So someone has a bigger responsibility and oftentimes it's probably local municipalities and the government. Mm. 
to invest in that high quality. Then it's the parent responsibility to enroll that child. It's the teacher responsibility to teach that child and it's the community responsibility to support that program. If we don't think of it that way and we're not, we're thinking about a very silo, well, it's not, you know, I didn't get this and they, I was a mandated and, you know. No, I think that's a, a really beautiful way to phrase it because it's really easy to say, well, everyone, but, you know, this isn't, this isn't a hive mind, you know, we're not just going to all collectively at the same time decide to do this. But I think there's something very um, appropriate about how you phrased, we need the government to put it in place, we need the, the schools to uh, support these early childhood education systems with, you know, resources and materials and, and capability and knowledge. And then we need the communities to sustain, to sustain them and um, even develop them further and, you know, encourage them to grow and have more mm -hmm. in the community. I think that's a really great way that the sort of the, the catalyst has to be that our government, whether it's local or state or federal has got to say, we're doing this. Mm -hmm. We want schools to take ownership of it, though. And then the schools will say, okay, but we need community help. And like, I just think that would be a really wonderful thing. I want to shift gears for a second, mm -hmm. because I don't want to lose, lose track of this interview without spending a good amount of time talking about your work in Ethiopia. And one, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your work in Ethiopia, but also how it's influenced your work here in California. Uh, sure, thank you. So um, I founded uh, Early Childhood Education Ethiopia now a little bit over a year ago, and it, it is true. My I uh, did my dissertation research in um, 2014, and it was really based on the, my, my, when I went there looking at those 10 schools and spending quite a bit of a time just open my eyes. Sometimes you go into research to think of, I'm going to do this. And then data slaps you on your face and says, <laughs> you're looking at the wrong thing. No, I'm just <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> definitely true. I've heard many versions of that. And I had a micro experience with that myself in the program already. So yeah, I hear you. Yeah, it just, you know, you gather the data you want, and then there's so many other data that you come, you know, it comes with it. Mm -hmm. um, and it started after that. And, and I've been thinking about, you know, need to, the need to do that. But the main thing was looking at the Education for All campaign, this kind of universal, of course, that you were asking, you know, and why um, this global approach failed uh many countries in terms of just kind of moving early childhood education forward. And uh, we found, I founded that organization, um, but I also feel like the board came just willingly um, and to, well, three of the faculty from Cal State Long Beach are on my board, uh, Dr. Joitsna Patnaik, Dr. Charles Slater, and Dr. Jin Lee are, because they've just been, a, they've played an influential role. So. The organization is focused on supporting, creating, and developing early childhood education programs throughout Ethiopia. 
uh, our focus is in rural Ethiopia because a lot of children are out of school. So out of all the eligible preschool children, only 45 have access. And I think Jason, you know what access means. Access means you just go in the door. <laughs> that doesn't mean it tells us the story it's, of what- you're, you're shown the door. Exactly. You know, it's, it's wild how people don't have access. Yes. Um, so that doesn't mean children are getting what they need in that classroom. So 45% is access, but 55% do not have access and there aren't enough facilities or it's non-existent facilities. And so our focus is to build more facilities, but uh, we want to do it right. By right, I mean, we want to create programs that are what I just mentioned earlier, high quality, interactive, culturally based, and that reflects um, Ethiopia as a country, linguistically, um, traditionally, what children see in the classroom. Um, and so it is an uphill uh, mountain, but I think something that I'm really, really looking forward to, and I just feel like it has given me a life again, you know, um, and I look forward to the challenge and uh, working there. So that's where we're at. Um, we have many, we're, we're doing it by project. So we have four phases and we're on uh, phase one, which is project alpha. Uh, and in this phase, what we've decided to do is learning from Cal State Long Beach. You just don't go and say, apply this. We're really studying two programs, one in rural and one in, in the city. Uh, but we're going to augment classrooms, inside and outside classroom, and get feedback from parents, communities, teachers, and really see what the challenge has been, because that will inform us when we build that the rural area challenges are similar in different parts of the country, because we have a lot of shared um, uh, I would call it just environmental, social, and cultural challenges based on resources, to be honest with you. Uh, access to healthcare, access to clean water, access to um, even roads to schools. Um, and so shifting the mind is going to be and convincing, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I'm. I'm fascinated by this. So forgive me if I start giving you <laughs> rapid fire questions. But one, how how does one even start something like this where you, where you think to yourself, I'm going to create something that didn't exist on another continent? Two, how do you ensure that, because you're not living there, how do you ensure that your vision is clearly articulated in a way that the people who are remaining behind are, are carrying that vision out and then three how do you maintain a level of uh, cultural awareness so that you're not running any risk of like colonizing you know you're you're bringing your western, western ideals, yeah. <laughs> ideas and saying here's you know here's what you should be doing like yeah. i know those are three very different questions but i'm just fascinated by this whole thing this whole process yeah, you know, um, I'm a bit of an idealist and a dreamer. <laughs> so when we launched this, when we launched this, um, I'll be very honest with you. I, I remember the first week we launched it, so many people responded. It, 
with positive, you know, just wanting, oh, I heard this and I heard, and, and, and it, it scared me a little bit because I didn't expect, <laughs> yeah, like it's really good, you know? But then I anchored on those people, Jason. I anchored on those uh, few people that, and I'm just the type of person that I can see and connect. And if my heart kind of leads me to that person, I just say, this is meant to be. So I know this doesn't sound very scientific because people do like background checks and this, I just anchored on those group of people that first said, this is it, this is what the country needs and we believe in. So I continued my communication with them. And so prior to doing anything, I did a couple of seminars, kind of large seminars, uh, bi-continental seminars from people from Ethiopia, some university personnel, uh, someone from the Ministry of Education there. And uh, we really just wanted to come together and see, as you said, what are the thoughts? What are the challenges? Is Does it match what I've been reading, what I've researched? And it was good to be validated in that sense, you know, for them to bring into this focus and present to um, attendees here and abroad. And so those group of people I kept in communication and, and contact. Um, and we just actually hired a country representative and the person that is taking that role was that one of the people that anchored on from the beginning. Um, and so that I think answers the, the first question that yes, I am a far away, but there were many people that really believed in the philosophy, the mission and vision. Mm. Um, and just continuing to, to keep in communication, but also staying humble because I still know my education abroad. You know, I grew up in Ethiopia, I was born in Ethiopia, but my education abroad, you're right, this Western influence is still there and something that in my dissertation too that I've, um, you know, your positionality statement that I've put in that, you know, being abroad for so many years, of course has influenced how I think about uh, early childhood education. but. Yeah, I've stayed humble to who I am in that sense. Mm. Um, the second question is in terms of making sure that my vision is implemented and done. Um, I do plan to frequent home. I call, you know, my, Ethiopia is my home. Sure. Home uh, much more now than before. But we also have a, a team. business expenses, so it's great. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but we have a team now back home that, uh, again, I've, I've been building relationships with, with over a year and I kind of know who they are and how they think and um, what they believe in and, you know, those shared visions. And then third, we are partnering with various universities because I think one thing that I just appreciate so much about Cal State Long Beach is that uh, that interagency connection you know, that is so critical with, especially with early childhood education, that you really need that institution um, because it's a growing field <laughs> and it needs that institution backing. Um, and so that's where we are. Uh, and finally, and I think this is the dreamer in me, I, I think you have to believe in your dreams. You know what I mean? I think you have to believe without wavering that it will happen if you work on it. So the questions that you brought up come in my mind often. 
but I also see the people that have come and I've connected with and where this is going and actually it's accelerated much faster than I can catch it sometimes. Um, but I, I just believe, especially for Ethiopia right now, uh, I don't think there's a lot of things going on in Ethiopia right now. I think if we want to realize that one Ethiopia that's inclusive and that's, um, that's successful is through the children. And so I think there's a lot of people that believe in that. So you've been putting in a good amount of work into this. How has that influenced the work that you're doing here in California? Um, you know, one thing that I'm finding myself say more and more, and I've said it before, is this idea of culture. I was in a meeting uh, two days ago, and this was at a state level, and we're talking about creating um, just systems in place. And one thing is this importance of culture, Jason. And I think that has, that comes from my work in Ethiopia, uh, because culturally, we talk about cultural relevant pedagogy, cultural relevant instruction, we talk about it, right, in terms of education here in the United States. But culture is so much more than this exotic thing. Culture is what you do every mm -hmm. morning. Culture is what a child wears to school. Culture is how a child speaks. And I've, I've really, I think that influence and I'm becoming like a cement in culture. You know, I truly believe that's where we need to start, even in early childhood education here, that the, the culture piece um, is what has influenced what I do here. I just keep bringing it back. And it hasn't been defined, like it hasn't been crystallized even for me yet, but I, I truly believe there's something. And uh, Dr. Billings, you know, the CRP, the cultural relevant pedagogy, I, I keep going back to, her philosophy, her writing, uh, her approach, and finding new meaning in many different dimensions. I don't know if that mm. answers it. No, I, I can see how, especially in Southern California, where it is, I mean, it is an incredibly diverse population uh, in Southern California. I, I would say Southern California and New York are probably yeah. the most just wildly diverse where you can see all of the cultures sort of, sort of merging and, and, and pocketing itself as well. I thought you said something really interesting about really learning and embracing the culture. Do you find that one of the roles of ECE is to help a child develop a strong sense of self or is that kind of an after effect of it. No, it is. And actually, we, uh, as, as a professor, I teach a class on um, how to identify who we are and how a teacher can support that in the classrooms, whether it's dual language learning class or social emotional or children with special needs, right? And you're right. It is very important for children to know, understand, and embrace who they are first in the environment they come in also celebrates who they are at two, three, and four, so that at seven and eight, they're able to connect learning to who they are. Mm. I think that the service is, especially with our curriculum instruction in early childhood, we don't do enough of that. You know, yeah. um, curriculum instruction is- We don't do enough of that in- uh, K through 12. K 12 either. <laughs> So that's where we're in common, Jason. <laughs> birth, 
it's incredibly standardized and people yeah. aren't standard. And no. That's sort of the, the issue. No. And, and one thing we miss is I think there's this fear that if we embrace culture, we are letting go of this, you know, Eurocentric type of, mm. and we're not. I think if we embrace culture, actually we learn more about who we are and it would benefit this society in, in a far reaching way than ever uh, because some of this issue that we see, you know, with what happened in Atlanta is the misunderstanding of who people are first and foremost, where they come from, what they've contributed uh, as human beings. And that starts at two, three, four, a toddler, sense of belonging, sense of contribution, and someone else looking at that and celebrating that and saying, oh, you know what? We're in this together. We belong in this, into this classroom together. We can only take that and say we belong in this society together. If, it, if we don't do it at two, three, and four, I don't know how we can do it at 19, 20, 35, and yeah. 65. <laughs> you said something at the beginning of this interview about if politicians had a lived experience of sitting in a uh, preschool classroom, a zero to five classroom. And, uh, you know, that's, that's true for everything. If you have a lived experience, suddenly it's real yeah. and suddenly you understand it. I can't mm -hmm. tell you how many times movies have come out, whether it be a movie about a Greek family, a Jewish family, an Asian family, an Indian family, a black family. And you watch these movies and you go, oh, so Italians and, and you know, the Chinese, they're it's the same idea with the mom and, the, you know, the Indians and the Jews. It's, all of a sudden you're, you're, you're making these connections mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, the, the, the veil of, of ignorance, of inexperience. And I'm yeah. not saying a movie is necessarily a lived experience, but it's an experience when you've had nothing. Yeah. Uh, and so I think I think that's true for everything. And I think that's a really uh, it's a point that's really well taken. That the more we provide opportunities to both celebrate and explore various cultures, the easier it's going to be yeah. when you're older to be accepting of others. It's so much harder to deprogram decades <laughs> of of uh, you know, just terrible views, honestly. Um, all right. So before I get you out, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to give me sort of a looking into the future, 10 years from now, you'll be in your third decade of working <laughs> in early childhood education. What do you hope early childhood education will look like in your third decade? And what challenges do you think will still be as relevant as they are today? Mm, that's a good question. I think uh, in 10 years, I'm really, really hoping we learned a lot from what happened with COVID this year. Mm -hmm. You know, I really, really hope. And I'm, I'm also hoping some of the things that are coming down the pipeline in uh, California really materializes in the way that it's being theorized right now and that it becomes the blueprint of what successful equitably implemented early childhood education looks like at the state level because it's California is very populated too right and like you said because we're very diverse and we have so many uh, 
children from you know, immigrant families, dual language learner, English language learners, so many uh, diverse family makeup too, that in 10 years, like, I hope we get it right, really more than anything, I hope we really get it right. And that yeah. there are more equitable early learning environments than not. That maybe we're at 70, 80% and that when we look at high quality preschool programs, we go into these urban communities and we look at what they're doing. And there are some, we just wanna multiply those by hundreds to make sure we meet all children. I wanna see the same, oh, go ahead. So when you talk about what we learned from COVID, do you mean just the, how precarious and how fragile the, the ecosystem is? Yep, especially early childhood because we couldn't do what K through 12 did. Yeah. We can't have a three-year-old sit in a Zoom classroom. <laughs> you know what I mean? Don't let my two-and-a-half-year-old near a computer. It's um, it's horrifying. It's like, yeah. it's like uh, watching uh, a cheetah devour an animal. <laughs> it's just horrifying. Yeah, so, you know, it's simply as that. We couldn't replicate what K-12 was doing. We, we couldn't. We just completely couldn't. And so just learning from that, learning the fact that we really need to pay our early childhood education teachers, not 16, not 18, but a lot more, you know, 30, $35 an hour. And I know that might just oh, some policymakers, but <laughs> if we want them to teach. If we just had $1.9 trillion a few months ago, I think we can handle. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, because I think we have to look at what is the return of investment? We want children to be kind, loving, and also very smart and STEAM, you know, STEM oriented, then let's pay the teacher so they can get the education they need to implement in the classroom. So I'm just hoping that we do that here, at the, you know, uh, as a nation at, at, and in the California. And then I think globally and, and in, for Ethiopia too, um, we just completed a huge symposium uh, titled Ethiopia in 10 years. Um, I had no idea. <laughs> Yes, no, really. That question was really perfect then. Yeah, and it was looking at just the question and the title was Ethiopian 10 years, um, investing in culture, education, like just for an inclusive tomorrow. And that's what we want for Ethiopia too, that mm. when we invest in women and children, that, that's really it. Countries that have invested in children and women have impacted society, have impacted communities, have impacted the country have impacted humanity. And that's what we want for Ethiopia and for Africa. And it seems like a very simple calculation, but mm. it's a simple calculation that yields just exponential results. So that's what we want. All right, so we've reached the bittersweet part of the show because the interview is ending, but we're not done with you yet, Dr. Naguski. Uh, this is a time now you can take off your ECE hat if you want, or you can leave it firmly on. But this is an opportunity to really kind of know a bit more about who you are and kind of what's been giving you life lately, as the kids would say. This is a segment I call Extra Credit, where you assign the pod class audience and me, if you'd like, an extra credit assignment. It can be anything from reading a book, checking out a TV show, exploring a country when we're able to do that again, checking out a certain type of food, whatever it is 
It's all yours. You're running the show now. What would you like to give as an extra credit assignment to the pod class audience? Wow. Extra credit assignment. Hmm. Uh, I think um, maybe a book. Um, one of my other loves in life is poetry. And um, there is a famous um, poet laureate. He passed away. It, it, um, he was a writer. He was a poet. He was a um, theater person. His name was Agai uh, Gabromadhin. He has a book called Soaring on Winged Verse. Um, and the reason why I'm saying read this book is I think sometimes we get pigeonholed in what we see on TV and we just consume this, you know, it's what tells us to consume. But this book just gives a kind of a glimpse of Ethiopia, a glimpse of uh, this poet's life, a glimpse of uh, a time period in Ethiopia that may be very <laughs> far-fetched even for you, Jason, because, you know, it's not in your reality, but sure. it was a very well-written book. It's called Soaring on Winged Verse. And is this a memoir? Is it a book of poems? Yeah, it's a memoir uh, written, co-written by the um, the person and the, the other two authors, I believe. Um, and 85% was written with uh, the laureate, the poet, but then he passed away, of course, and the authors finished the rest of the book. And it's just, mm. it's a well-written, you know, book that okay. just gives a glimpse something um, very far away <laughs> no i mean listen it's first of all with the last you know 13 14 months i will take any opportunity to be transported really far away <laughs> at any point uh and just you know like we were talking about this whole interview about exposing ourselves to other people's lived experiences and being mm -hmm. able to connect with that and making us more well-rounded complete humans uh, on winged verse. Uh, soaring, yeah. Soaring on winged soaring, verse. Soaring yeah. on winged verse. Yeah. We'll definitely have to check that out. Dr. Nagusi, thank you so much for your time and for your work both here and abroad. Uh, please keep, keep fighting this fight because it's extremely important. Thank you, Jason. I really, really appreciate it. And I had a, just a wonderful time. Thank you. Okay, that is our show. I want to thank our very special guest, Dr. Hawani Nagusi, for joining us, and thank you, my pod classmates, for listening. If you'd like to follow Dr. Nagusi and her work in Ethiopia, you can find more information at www.earlyeducationethiopia.org. Are you a fan of the show? Is there a topic in education you'd like us to cover or talk more about? Reach out, let me know. I can be found on all social media platforms with the username at teachmemrwest. I can also be reached via email at podclasspod, that's podclasspod at gmail.com. One more thing, have you enjoyed this show? If so, I have a big favor that really won't take much time at all. The way podclass algorithms work is that the more five-star reviews and positive comments the show has, the more people will be able to find and hear the show. So I'd really appreciate it if you can go to wherever you get your podcast and go ahead and give this show a five-star rating and maybe even a little review if it's not too much trouble. If reviews aren't your thing, maybe tell a few folks you know to subscribe to the show. Again, I'm asking for about three minutes of your time. If you give me that, I promise I won't ask you for anything ever again. 
Probably. Until next time, podcast dismissed.